0: to have you all here tonight and I'm glad to have you with us. You know, around here we like math and we love science. Chemistry, biology, and did you know that, you know, you know biology is the study of living organisms, including living cells, but you know, did you know that biology is the only science where multiplication is the same thing as division? <laughs> Think about it for a minute. It'll come to you <laughs> eventually. Okay, seriously, let's get over to Dr. John and the Technology Spotlight.
1: Here's a question I'll bet you haven't asked yourself very much. Why is the internet so fast? Yeah. You know, we don't think about it when it's fast. I'll bet you've asked yourself this question. Why is the internet so slow? <laughs> right? Yeah, we all ask that. In fact, today we had one of our fibers get cut and a whole bunch of people lost their internet. And it's a pretty big ordeal. And everybody who didn't really think too much about it all of a sudden noticed that something was wrong. Well, we depend a lot on the internet and uh, the internet is connected throughout the world with fiber optic cables. And these aren't um, metal wires. These are glass wires, you could call them. We usually call them fiber optics, not wires. Uh, But the idea here is that we can send light down this little piece of glass really far distances, and uh, we can send a lot of data in that light. We encode ones and zeros and things into that light to send it really, really far. But we're always trying to figure out how to speed up the internet, to have more data go through, you know, so we can watch more videos and stuff like that, right? (laughs) And whatever else we need the internet for. And uh, so there are different ways that they can do that. Uh, Here's a picture of some fiber optic cables. You can see how the light that's getting shown on the other end is shining out the end that you can see. And uh, so the light can travel really far, even when the fiber turns and things inside of the fiber it's almost like a mirror bouncing the light back in and so the light will keep going uh, through turns and really far distances. Well, one way that we could send a lot more data over fiber is by using more colors of light. A lot of times they mainly just use red light for their little lasers that go through the fibers. Well, if we could send blue light too and some green light and all kinds of other frequencies of light, then those could all be sending data at the same time. We could send a lot more data over the fiber. And in fact, we've done experiments where we've tried this and it works. But the problem is, most of our lasers are only making one color of light. Nowadays, we can make little lasers on a chip, which is really neat and makes it so we can do this a lot easier. But still, they're only one color. So you would need like 50 different lasers up to do 50 different colors which is about what they're experimenting with and that gets really expensive and uh, problematic so some researchers have been looking at how they do this at UCSB and uh, their collaborators a lot of different universities working together on this and uh, one way that they can do this is with something called an optical frequency comb, and um, this is a really neat thing where if you look at the, the lights uh, diagram, you can see if, if you show the diagram, there it is, you can see how there's only little teeny lines of the different colors. So instead of a full spectrum, there's these little teeny lines. And they can actually use this to produce a lot of different colors with their lasers. And the problem is this frequency comb is a big and complex thing until now (laughs) and that's the tech of the week well big introduction huh so they found a way to make a frequency comb on a little chip which makes it so they can do a lot of things that weren't possible before so now they can actually start sending these different colors all at once with one laser in their design pretty amazing stuff there's something else that's really special about a frequency comb, though. it allows us to make really accurate time measurements Take a look at this. This is an atomic clock. This happens to be an NIST atomic clock. And this is what you'd expect it to look like, You know, wires everywhere. This is really complex stuff. They use I believe this one uses a uh, cesium atom. And it measures the oscillations of the atom. And they can measure time really, really accurately. You know how you can buy those atomic clocks to go on your wall? Those aren't atomic clocks. <laughs> those are radio clocks that receive signals from something like that atomic clock. And so we need to use these to keep everybody in seat, keep time exactly right. And so um, they've been using atomic clocks, I think now for about 50 years, and they work really, really reliably. But recently, they've been developing new atomic clocks. They call them optic clocks. And um, if you take a look at this, this is an optical clock from the UK, and this looks more sci-fi. This is pretty cool. And uh, they were able to measure so accurately that they estimate that since the beginning of the universe, was that, like uh, a lot of years, I think it was 14 billion or something like that, <laughs> long time ago, since then, they would only be up to 100 seconds off, which is amazing. And they think they can get that 10 to 100 times better, so they'd only be a second off. It <laughs> would be amazing timekeeping, wouldn't it? Well, our little um, frequency... Uh, fork, no, not a fork, comb. Frequency comb that's in a chip. <laughs> you know, fork, comb, kind of like. In fact, they named it a comb because it kind of looks like a comb, doesn't it? Those, those light rays. Maybe it isn't quite as accurate as that unit from the UK, but if you take a look at how small it is, it's way smaller and they're going to be able to make them at scale. And see, George is there keeping an eye on things to give you an idea of how tiny it is and you can see the fiber coming in on the side and uh, so this is gonna make it so we can have really accurate timekeeping in a small space maybe in a wristwatch then we can have watches that keep time really really accurately and some of you are probably thinking well my smartwatch syncs up the time all the time so I don't need that well I have one of those too, and the other day It stopped sinking, and I was 10 minutes late. So (laughs) smartwatch that's not smart. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, there's more to it than that. Uh, You can do really neat things with a clock that's that accurate. For example, um, if you go become an astronaut and go to the space station, you'll find, maybe you won't notice it, but you'll probably learn, that time passes faster when you're here on the Earth than when you're on the space station. And if you sync your clock with the atomic clock on Earth, then you would never notice. But if you had a clock that was accurate enough, you would actually be able to measure that. I think it was something like a millisecond a day or something. It's not very much, but it is different. And we all experience time a teeny bit differently, depending on where we are. If you go up on top of a high mountain, there's less gravity. changes the speed of time. In fact, they've used atomic clocks to measure that but they had to take the big bulky kind. Mm. Now there are a lot of things that we could measure about space time that really weren't possible before. And even more than that, there are things like GPS that we use all the time and they are so dependent on accurate time. If we had accurate enough clocks in our GPS, we could have much more accurate readings of exactly where we are and would allow us to do a lot of neat things that aren't possible. So, there are a lot of applications that I think are going to be really, really neat with this technology. So, it's going to make these really accurate clocks smaller and more affordable. So, a lot to look forward to, right? And speaking of time, it's all the tech we have the time for. (laughs) Thank you.
0: All right now it's time for breakthroughs in science with Tobias
2: okay all right sorry i'm i'm a little, I'm a little nervous okay just you know what just a second that's better that's better okay. Science is hot stuff, okay? <laughs> and you know what? Some, you know, some people, they get up here, they talk about science. You know, Roger Billings makes it look so easy. And then you're like, talk about science? Yeah, I'll get up here. And then you're like... Tonight we're going to talk about science stuff. <laughs> but you know, there's a lot of things like that, where you just take it for granted till you try it. Okay? It's like this little fan here. It's pretty nice, you know? You can go up and down. Oh, it's also a shaver. <laughs> but... <clears throat> This fan is so simple, right? So easy, not much. But what makes this fan do what it does? And what do we take for granted that looks so easy that actually is an incredible feat of engineering and invention? Now, somebody here is probably going, the breakthrough is about fans. (laughs) Well, first of all, lighten up, okay? But no, it's not about fans. It's about what's making this fan spin. Electric motors. And electric motors are something that really take electricity and convert that electricity into movement motion, which is a pretty amazing thing. And to really appreciate it, we have to go way back to some foundational discoveries that inventors and scientists made of this electricity. Now, the first one I want to mention is that they discovered that when you pass electric current through something like, so let's assume, let's assume this was a wire and you, you pass a voltage through the wire, that a magnetic field, um, I was going to say appears, it doesn't appear, you can't see it, but a magnetic field is created and is around that wire as the current is passing through it. So all of a sudden you put a current through this, this wire and then <laughs> I see you have constructed a new lightsaber. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> Darth Vader sounds like Sean Connery tonight. <laughs> the name's Bond. Darth Bond. <laughs> no. But we pass electricity through it, and we get a magnetic field. That's a key thing we need to me- memorize. Remember, the next thing is we go to somebody, and let's look at this picture of Michael Faraday in the 1820s. He made this little contraption, and inside this contraption, if you look here, we have he, he dangled a wire, down into a cup of mercury, okay, and so it's a liquid metal, and in the middle of the cup sticking out like an island was a permanent magnet. Now remember, a permanent magnet is like, and I actually have some here, so this is always magnetic, constantly, and he had one of those permanent magnets sticking up out of that mercury, and he dangled a wire down. Then he attached that to a battery. So now there was a current passing through that wire, and the mercury finished the circuit. So there's power running through, electricity running through that wire. And the moment he turned it on or connected the circuit, it started to go around the magnet inside that mercury. Okay. Now, something really important that we'll learn later or why it's important is when you flip the battery, so you flip the flow of current the other direction, the wire flipped and went the other direction, and that's really important because the magnetic field that's going around the wire changes depending on which way the current is flowing. So two really important things. Well, after this, this really the first time that somebody took a current and converted that electric current into movement, that was Faraday's one of Faraday's many breakthroughs, but a huge one in the quest for electric motors. Now, lots of other breakthroughs and lots of people started to design renditions of movement through this method. If you look here at all of these pictures, all of these pictures are inventions that utilize one more discovery. And that discovery was that if you wrap a wire around something that can be magnet, so some metal, like a nail, if you wrap a wire around a nail and push a current through a voltage, it will transform that nail into a magnet. So you had if you have one wire, you know, you've got, you've got that magnet filled around it. What if you had it wrapped a much stronger, the more wire you wrap around it, the more powerful that magnet becomes. So another really important piece. And each of these, so important to the end result. And what we basically come to, and there's so many different kinds of motors, but we're going to look at one in particular that's one of the most common, okay? And this makes use of all the things we just talked about. And really, the first one of these was made in the 1860s, and of course, power was limited because you had to make your batteries, and that was your power until Thomas Edison would create the first electric grid. we really started to have electricity available. But the basic premise behind it is you start with something like a magnet. okay, so this is a real magnet, and we all know you know the magnet, you can do magical things. I can put the magnet in my hand, and then I. Ooh, you know, that, that's actually really cool that it can do that. But it also repels. If I took it the other way, it would shoot off because they repel when one of the magnets, if you have two of them, is flipped the other way. Every magnet has a north and a south. And if you bring it close to another magnet, you better have it turned the right way because if you don't, I'm not pretending, um, it, they repel until you flip it around. And then it's happy. It's really happy. It doesn't want to come apart. So that, that understanding of magnetism, they then took and applied into this motor system. So we've got our magnet. We've got a north and a south. Let's imagine that we took another piece and put a magnet on here. Okay, so we've got two magnets. Here we go. We bring it up, and they attract because they're both oriented, aligned in the same direction, north over here, south over here. What if I turn this one? Now they don't, <laughs> they don't want to go together. This one turns to align to it. So if I keep turning this one, it'll keep spinning. Okay. So this way it repels it. This way it repels it. Now, what if I replace this magnet with, instead of a magnet, I wrap a wire around this metal. Okay. Well, it's just wire wrapped around metal until I put that current through. When I put that current through, same deal. It spins it spins it spins okay so if if we and i'm going to switch over to this okay so imagine this is the wire with the current going through it all right now it spins around every time i spin this ma- you know what what if i kept the magnet fixed and instead remember if we flip the direction of the battery then the magnetic field will flip okay also i could flip the wires I flipped the, ma- the magnetic direction by flipping the direction of the circuit flow. So I flip the wires to the magnet that's sitting here. It flips, flip, so I can flip the wires. If I can flip that circuit, the flow of electricity, it will flip the magnetism. Okay. So they took that and they put a magnet on this side and on this side. And they didn't put something like my little bar magnet. They did kind of like a, a little half circle magnet on this side, and a half circle on this side. Okay, That's going to work really nicely, but how am I going to, I can't sit here flipping wires constantly. I need some way to keep this turning, to keep that that circuit, that current, flipping, changing every half turn. So what they did was they put on the end of this wire, they put a pad that was arched. You know what? I'm going to show you a picture. This is a lot easier. So look at this. You can see at the end of the two wires, there's these circular metal pieces, but they're not touching. That's really important. So it's still the current flows in, goes around through the wire, and comes out the other side. And then look at those two little yellow and black things pushing up against it. That gives it the connection. So if we look at this uh, video here, we can see that it's magnetically pushing that way. And when it turns, it flips to the other side, so now the other side of the wire is getting the positive charge, and it keeps turning, so the current's going that way until it changes to the other side and flip, now the current's going the other direction. And so this allows that magnetic field to keep changing every half turn. So as it's, as it's doing that, sometimes it can get stuck in, the, in between those little spaces so they actually broke it into more here's uh, four of them so not two but now there are four wires so it's doing it even better where we have four wires and again that connection point and those brushes are held on by springs that are pushing against those wire ends and it keeps turning now one thing we've discovered is if you put that had just like one wire But what if we put a bunch of wires in that? Remember, if you put more wires around that nail, the magnetic field gets stronger. Well, they did the same thing. So if you look at this, this is changing those wires into lots of wires. And you can see there's lots of pads that it's connecting to. And so now we've got some incredible power and efficiency. And really, that's what a lot of our motors today are experiencing, all from the Faraday discovery in the 1820s of this movement of that magnetic field. So all around you, from the little fans to cars that run on motors to all kinds of things that are turning, all of these pieces, not one specific breakthrough, but a whole trail of breakthroughs leading to something that really has changed the world. So just keep in mind that science is hot and it's cool. So thank you. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Now introducing Roger Billings.
3: Yeah, that's uh, that's really dangerous to play with fire. You need to talk to your people. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, for those of you that just came in, this is Doctor Page Monet. And she has a group of people that follow and support her and they're all from a distant planet, I think. <laughs> yeah. <They are? laughs> and we're learning about interplanetary travel.
0: I know. All about time and how it's relative here and <laughs> <Yeah>. True thing. <laughs> I'd like
3: to welcome everybody tonight. Hope you're enjoying this beautiful summer. Some people are having storms tonight. That's to water your flowers. It's good. It's good to have you all here. John, uh, that was pretty good. Joseph, your opening <laughs> biology thing, I want to talk to you about after. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I'm really kind of amazing, isn't it? And uh, Tobias excellent. You know when he was uh, shaving with his fan <coughs> uh, and he was saying this is amazing, guess what it is, Guess." What? and I thought it's the battery. He's talking about it, but it was the motor wasn't it. You know the batteries are pretty amazing too. If you take a piece of metal and stick it in a piece of fruit or maybe even a potato and then you take a different kind of metal and stick it in there too you can actually create a battery. Just two pieces of metal into an acid, like a piece of fruit, and you can actually hook it up and and it can do some work. And the battery that is in his little fan is pretty amazing technology. And what's really happening is he's taken a very pure piece of this metal and a very pure piece of that metal, and when we pull the electricity out of the battery, we're corroding the metal. Have you ever noticed how a a piece of of steel can be bright and shiny, but if you leave it out in the rain, it becomes rusty? And what happens is is the iron combines with water, and the water is pulled apart by the iron because the water (coughs) has hydrogen and oxygen in it, And the iron wants the oxygen more than the hydrogen does. So the hydrogen comes off, and the oxygen reacts with the iron and forms iron oxide, which is that reddish, sandy stuff. As metals corrode, they generate the electricity. That's how a battery works. Some batteries are rechargeable. Some are disposable, right? I guess you can dispose of rechargeable too, but the difference is that one you can regenerate the pure metal, and others you can't. I think it's kind of neat. It is. But I didn't want to talk about that tonight. Tonight I want to talk about something that um, is kind of exciting. Uh, those of you know that that have been with us for a few weeks know that I'm very interested in our health, staying healthy. And there are a lot of wonderful things that we've learned in science and medicine that make our bodies healthier. Remember, Do you remember when they invented antibiotics?
0: I heard about it. <laughs>
3: okay, that one's a little too old for me. But it is kind of amazing because they saw some mold, mm-hmm. some mold, yeah, growing on something, and they found out that if you take that as a pill or as an injection that it can stop bacteria growing in your body and it saved many, many, many lives. Pretty wonderful. But there, in spite of all of the miracles of modern science, there's a lot of things, uh, illnesses and sicknesses that we confront that science is still learning how to to fight and, and how to do better. And some interesting things is it seems like Some conditions, some medical conditions, seem to be getting more popular, and more people are having them. And some of these conditions have to do with eating certain foods, like, for example, wheat. Uh, There's a condition it's called celiac disease. And if you happen to have it and you eat wheat, it can make you really unhealthy or really sick, I guess. Uh, you're already unhealthy if you have celiac disease. but it, So you have to avoid eating wheat to be able to feel good. Uh, they say about 1% of our population now has that condition and that's, that's actually quite a few, one out of every 100 people. But then there's a bunch of other conditions that come from eating wheat and uh, some of those uh, are as as high as 15% of the population have them. And there are different allergies and reactions to to wheat that make us sick. We say a lot of people have problems because of eating wheat that they don't even realize are caused by wheat. Uh, Wheat's a very um, common, plentiful food. It's one of the main sources of, of protein and fiber in our diets and yet a lot of people now are having a hard time eating it, and so we're trying to invent and make a lot of different products that are for people that are gluten intolerant. Now, gluten is one of the enzymes that make up wheat. Uh, It's kind of uh, interesting because uh, wheat has been around for thousands and thousands of years. It was the the first uh, grain that was... Grown by man, was actually cultivated. And it's been a, a staple of food forever and ever. And now more and more and more people can't eat it. And whenever something like that happens, there's usually an explanation, there's usually a reason. And then, quite often, if you can figure out the reason, maybe there's a cure, a solution, a way you can solve the problem. I've been interested in wheat for a long time because. I believe that wheat is one of the best sources of fiber, and fiber and other things in wheat, there's a lot of minerals and vitamins. Wheat's a really, really good food, except now fewer and fewer people can eat it. And we are living in a time when medicine is pretty wonderful, there are miracles that medicine can do, but there is no better cure for disease than preventing disease. And someone once wisely said that uh, an ounce of prevention is worth more than a pound of cure. And it really is true if we can prevent disease. And there are a lot of things that we can do to prevent illness. Our bodies would probably all be sick all the time except for the fact that Inside of us is an amazing immune system, and we call it a system because it's got many, many different uh, features or facets or or little soldiers in there that that protect us and, and fight us getting sick. Our immune systems need certain things to be able to function, and the things they need, well, one of them is the right kinds of food, of Minerals vitamins things that that these little immune system features are based upon and Sometimes our diet gets a little bit sloppy they make some foods that are really sweet or really tasty and and Sometimes the ones that seem to be the tastiest aren't necessarily the most healthy Did you know that if you would eat a well-balanced, healthy diet, that you would have less illness in your life. It's an interesting thought. Do you believe it's true? It is. It's proven time and time and time again. And yet, not always are scientists able to agree what you should eat to be healthy. That's kind of a problem. It, it turns out that our bodies are amazing at taking just about anything that you eat and doing their best to get by. Uh, I'm fascinated by seeds. Seeds, of course, are are little teeny things made by plants. And, you know, they're they're little. Sometimes you look at a seed and you wonder, I wonder what kind of seed this is. Wheat is actually a seed. And yet, if you put a seed in something really gross like dirt (laughs) and cover it and water it, the seed comes alive and a plant comes out and the plant just happens to be the very same kind of plant that the seed came from. When you think about it, it's kind of amazing and it grows. And when you see that plant come up out there and if it's the right kind of plant, it'll get some kind of fruit on it. Or if it's, you know, a peas or tomato or whatever it is, it, it forms the vegetable or the fruit for that kind of plant. And I look at it and I think, how did that delicious food come out of that dirt? You ever think about it? And I went through the dirt trying to see where all that good flavor came from. <laughs> but it is miraculous that plants are able to pull those delicious things that we, we eat out of dirt and yet it turns out that when it comes to growing plants not all dirt is equal some dirt is better dirt than other dirt (laughs) to me all dirt is dirt but some of the things that plants really like in dirt are what we call fertilizers And they're fertilizers because when the dirt gets low on them, we add some more. We fertilize the field. So if a farmer's going to grow crops, very often they'll take a sample of the dirt, have it analyzed to see what minerals and, and compounds are present. Then they'll find out what kind they're deficient, and they'll have the fertilizer people come over and apply fertilizer to their field. And then, if everything's been done right, they'll get a much bigger harvest than they would do without the fertilizer. So these things that are in the dirt are very important. If some of those minerals or elements are not present, the plants won't even grow. They won't even, they'll grow up halfway and they'll they'll flop over and, and that'll be the end of them. They won't even put on fruit. Usually though, there's enough of the ingredients for a plant to somehow survive but maybe the fruit is very scrawny and the harvest is very small. Whereas if you had a little bit of fertilizer, you get this big, beautiful harvest. So plants need certain minerals and elements in the soil to be able to grow and produce the wonderful fruits and vegetables they produce. Well, like plants, so we too need certain things in our bodies to be able to be healthy, to make our immune system strong. When a a bug comes around, like maybe a cold or something, if you have your immune system really tuned up, you're gonna have much smaller chance of catching that cold. And so it just makes sense to take care of your immune system or take care of your body. And uh, there are three things that seem to be real important for those. One is what you eat, your diet, whether or not you're giving your body the right fertilizers that it needs to have all of the bodily functions work well. Did you know that the body, if it can't get everything it needs, it tries to get by using something else, and something else, and it's amazing that bodies, can function pretty well, even if it's being given an inadequate diet. But a good diet is always the best. And what are the things that, that you should have? Well, diversity in diet is one of the important things. They have these different food groups. And you could probably name them, couldn't you? I think so. And we won't put you on the <laughs> spot by asking, what are they? <laughs>
0: Eat, well, you're protein, to eat protein, fat, the good fat. Eat fat? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Really? My body has to you have You want me that. to eat fat? Mm-hmm. Just the right kind. Hmm. Just the right amount. Fruits, vegetables. Some of
3: the oils and, and things are actually very important for the body. Mm-hmm. A, a real good one, for example, is olive oil. Mm-hmm. It's very good for the body. What else?
0: Nuts. Nuts. Which are really high in fat as well. Fat nuts. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of minerals in
3: them. Minerals. And okay, fiber. what else? Fruits. Fruits.
0: Mm-hmm. Vegetables.
3: And vegetables. What is the difference between a fruit and a vegetable?
0: Let's ask Bev. And, <laughs>
3: and is tomato it's a,
0: fruit. a
3: fruit or a vegetable? I
0: thought it was a fruit.
3: Where is Dr. Beverly?
0: Dr. Beverly is way in the background.
3: Right? There she is, she's hiding
1: yeah.
3: right out of sight. There you yeah. are. Um, <clears throat> What's the difference between fruits and vegetables? It depends on what definition you're going with. The fruit of the plant produces seeds. She says the difference is the taste. (laughs) (laughs) Well, something like that. They can't hear you. (laughs) Anyway, it is really interesting. There's a whole science of these different things. But fruits and vegetables are very, very good for you. Mm -hmm. It seems like the stuff that kind of messes up our bodies are things where we get carried away. Yeah. For example, you know, some fruits taste better when they get ripe. Mm-hmm. And when they get ripe, what happens is the fruits start to create sugar, which starts making them sweet. A green apple is pretty sour, mm-hmm. a ripe apple is sweeter. An example, grapes, other things. And so we taste those sweet fruits. And we say, we like sweet. And then someone figured out how they can make sugar in a laboratory. And then they did it in a factory. And pretty soon, mom and dad were bringing home big sacks of sugar from the store. And we started making all kinds of things with that sugar. And that sugar is just too much. It's not that sugar is evil. Actually, we need sugar for our bodies, and there is sugar in milk, there's sugar in fruit, there's sugar in a lot of the foods we eat. Mm -hmm. But when we start building big factories that make too much sugar and we eat too much of it and it's too concentrated, then it starts to be harmful for our bodies. I like to liken it to an automobile. Have you ever uh, tried to race a car that didn't have any gasoline? (laughs)
0: you ended up in last place unless it (laughs) was electric
3: or diesel you'd be in real trouble wouldn't you so if you have a gasoline car would you agree with me that gasoline is good for it
1: yes
3: yeah without it it doesn't go on the other hand they have a little uh hole on the side where you stick the gas pump and you pump in the gas and it goes into a little box or a gas tank and you fill up the gas tank. Now I have a friend named Walt Pile. You sure do. Walt Pile spent his whole career working for Chevron, Chevron Oil, Mm -hmm. and when the gas tank gets full, he made a little sensor that kicks off the pump. You ever notice that when it gets full, it just shuts off? Well, before Walt Pile, it didn't. And you say, well, anybody could just put a little sensor there, a little electric current and a solenoid. You can't have electricity around gas fumes, (laughs) can you? So he invented something that had no electricity that was able to shut off the pump. And it's kind of neat. When the tank's full, you turn off the pump, you pay the money, and you go. But sooner or later, that tank is going to run empty again. And if you're going on a real long trip, there's something else you can do. When you get your tank full, you can roll down the back window and just put the gas <laughs> in the back seat. <laughs> and you can fill up the whole back seat.
0: Not really. And
3: you <laughs> can also put it over on the passenger seat, too, you know. Fill fill. Can you see what I'm saying? The gasoline inside the compartment is unacceptable. It'd make the people who are in the car sick, the fumes of the gasoline and be very dangerous. Don't do it. And yet Did you know that's the same gasoline we put in the tank? So when you put it in the tank and it goes from the tank to the engine, that's good. When you put more in than the tank can hold, then it starts to create problems. And that's what happens in our bodies. When we eat some sugar, it's good, part of a balanced diet, sugar in moderation, just enough to fill your sugar tank. If you eat more than that, the body doesn't know what to do with it. And bodies function in a way that they just don't want to waste food. And so they store it. And where do they store the sugar?
0: Around our organs.
3: Yeah, they (laughs) turn it into stuff like triglycerides that go through your blood and it's turned into fat. Mm -hmm. and your body starts to become unhealthy if you start building up a lot of sugar. Eating too much sugar is not good. You need to have it in moderation. And so uh, eating right, having a good diet, is something that you have to kind of study. And a lot of people don't agree on some of the, the details. One thing that everybody seemed to figure out is you don't want to eat hydrogenated fat. I figure anything with the hydrogen (laughs) name in it's got to be good. (laughs) But it's true that if you take oils and then you react them with hydrogen, it can really increase the amount of oil. As the oil reacts with hydrogen, it forms a different kind of oil. But the hydrogenated oil is not natural and our bodies really don't like it. And so now you talk about things like trans fats, used to be that trans fats were in everything. When you go to get your hamburger and get an order of fries, if you got some nice fries that were cooked in trans fat oil, it was really tasty. And the nice thing is, you start with a little bit of oil that costs a certain amount of money, you react with hydrogen, get a lot more oil that's very cheap. So for the restaurant, it was great. They could cook a lot of fries without spending much money on oil. But we started finding out that trans fats were bad for us. And so eventually they passed a law and then they had to put on the label of every package how much trans fat is in, in the food. And people got wise to it and we stopped eating trans fats. Now they're much less common than they were not too many years ago. So eating right is very important. Getting a diversity, I think if people would eat a lot of fruits and vegetables and stop eating so much candy and soda pop, we would feel a lot better. And you, you don't always think about it that way. Sometimes if you eat well, your body is gonna be healthy long term. But short term, did you know that when you eat right, right away, you feel better? You feel better. They, they talk about sugar, and sugar spikes. One can of sugar soda pop has a ton of sugar in it. And when you get a big shot of sugar, it goes into your system. Sugar is like gasoline for the body. It's the fuel that our cells use to be able to operate. And if you get an overload of that, it makes the body overreact. And they say that children that get too much sugar get hyper, they get really uh, energetic and almost crazy, and, and they call it a sugar high. And after a sugar high, then the body finally gets rid of the sugar, then they have what they call a sugar low, and then they feel discouraged and tired and depressed. And all of those moods and things that happen could be caused because of an improper diet. So eating good is really important. And in our society today, one of the things that I'm thinking about, since I like people, and I especially like happy people, (laughs) I am busy trying to invent ways to make humans and even
0: and uh, other
3: people, too. (laughs) I'm trying to make them feel their best to really help people feel their best. And in that regard, there are so many opportunities. We're working, as you know, on digital lighting, lights that very efficiently convert electricity into light so you can grow plants indoors. You can grow tomatoes and lettuce and herbs and all kinds of foods indoors. We're experimenting now growing avocados indoors. I just ate my very first indoor-grown lemon. Wow, Wow, an indoor lemon. And all of these different things we we can produce. And if we can get a lot of really, really fresh, wonderful fruit and food, even during maybe cold seasons, I think we could eat a lot better. So that's something I'm very interested in and I am pretty excited about how well that's going. But tonight, in particular, I want to talk a little bit about wheat. Wheat is a really, really important food. Mm-hmm. And the, the fiber and, and all of the, the minerals and things that come from wheat, I think, are, are good for the diet, and yet more and more and more people are having a hard time eating wheat. And when I say hard time, some people, it just really makes them sick. And for others, it seems to be even worse than that. Some have to just completely avoid it. So why? What is wrong? And is it that, you know, we, we just have a condition? Well, sometimes that's what it is. But in other cases, maybe there's a problem with our wheat. Yeah. And I first got a clue when I was reading an article And this article said that they had been testing a new kind of wheat on people that seemed to have a real problem eating regular wheat with gluten intolerance, and that many of them, not all, and I want to make sure I point that out, not all, but many were doing much better with this new kind of wheat. And it turned out that the new kind of wheat is the old original wheat, the wheat that's been on the earth for 30,000 years. That goes way back. And when they were eating the old wheat, many of the problems that people are having with the modern weeds just didn't happen. And that got me really, really, really curious. Now, I, uh, I have a wonderful family, and I don't want to admit this in public, but if I were old enough, I would probably have grandchildren. <laughs> Why why is my lovely wife laughing? (laughs) Did you know that I'm married to a grandma? (laughs) Well, that's pretty tough, isn't it? Yeah. And it's interesting to see what people are like when they become grandparents. But, uh, okay, so I have some grandchildren, too. And my grandchildren are wonderful, but some of them have a real hard time eating wheat. It seems to cause different kinds of problems. And so when I read about this ancient wheat being different, I found some on the internet, ordered it, and we tried experiments where we had them try a little bit and then a little more and a little more. And in the case of my grandkids, they did a lot better with this ancient wheat than the new wheat. So I decided, well, I'm going to get a whole bunch of it And I started looking on the internet and ended up in a five-year project looking for a whole bunch of it. And it was very, very hard to find. There was one source, finally, that I found. I ordered it, it came in. I bought a lot of bags so that we could have it planted. I even bought some land and a tractor to be able to plant and a combine to be able to harvest it. And it turned out to be fake ancient wheat. That was disappointing. You know, how do you know? Well, yeah, this is uh, the ancient einkorn wheat. Well, it isn't. And thank goodness I had tried the real stuff because, I. Did well, no, this is, this is something else. Eventually, we did find some. But the wheat that we found was mixed up with barley? Barley? Barley's another grain. And in the wheat, there was barley and there was wheat. So we got a wheat separator. It's a machine you're supposed to run it through and separate it, and it separated nothing. <laughs> in it, we put wheat and barley, and out came more wheat and barley. It just <laughs> went right through. So um, eventually, we planted it. And up came wheat, and up came barley all together. There they were. And we got this combine, and we come run it through, and harvest them. And I still had wheat and barley, and we ran it through the separator again, and we still had wheat and barley. <laughs> that was discouraging. After all that work, getting a machine, getting a filled planting in it, and we couldn't get rid of the barley. Now, I'm not down on barley, but I wanted einkorn, ancient wheat, nice, pure, ancient wheat, and so. Uh, We started asking people, what can we do, what can we do, what can we do? And finally, we met an agronomist at the university and he said, well, why don't you plant the wheat in the fall? If you plant wheat when it's just starting to get cold, they call it winter wheat because you grow it during the winter. You say, how do you grow it? when there's snow, I mean, it gets cold in Missouri. And so, we planted it in the fall. And when the winter came, it killed the wheat. It got so cold, it killed the barley. But in the spring, the wheat wasn't completely dead. It came back, but the barley didn't. So it killed off all the barley. The wheat came up in the spring. We harvested, and we had pure einkorn. Now, one of the things that was kind of sad is just when we were getting ready the next year with a big field to harvest the wheat... All of a sudden, the whole field turned black. Just black, 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 the whole thing. We knew we had a terrible blight. We started calling the experts. We've got a problem. Our corn turned black. And when we finally found the right expert, he says, oh, then you have black corn. That's the best kind. <laughs> what is black corn? Well, it's the kind of corn that turns black just before harvest. And it turns out, as we did more research on it, that the black corn has absolutely the best health properties, and I'm so glad that's what we have. Well, we've been uh, growing einkorn this year. We, we went from a little field to a bigger. And uh, last fall, we planted winter wheat here in Missouri, einkorn, and we planted 92 acres. Now, to try and grow wheat, uh, nowadays, you have to use sprays and chemicals. And we didn't want to use sprays and chemicals because that's part of what we're trying to get away from. And we don't know what's in those chemicals. We'd like to do it the normal way. But if you don't spray it, then all the weeds come up and your wheat gets all contaminated. Well, we have a very ambitious member of our team that found us a machine over in Germany that actually can be driven through the wheat field and it digs out the little weeds and leaves the wheat. And I want to I wanna show it to you. I showed it a while back, but I want to show you a little video of it again. Do you want to see this? All right, here's the tractor pulling this little machine. And look, the little fingers sticking down. And that's the wheat growing. And it just drags right through the plants. The wheat survives it somehow but the poor weeds they uh and that's a nice shadow there it is poor little weeds they get chopped up so by using this time machine we were able to grow our wheat without needing to apply any chemicals any sprays on it which is pretty exciting now uh, i i want to show you the latest picture of in fact the drone shot of the field but before I do, I want to just explain something about what's going on with wheat. Wheat was around, like I said, 30,000 years ago. And then it got crossbred with goat wheat. Now, does everybody know what a chromosome is?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Everybody has chromosomes, right? Do you have chromosomes? I do. She does. Mm-hmm. OK. I'm going to show you a little picture My people have
0: chromosomes, here. too. <laughs>
3: If we can put up this little camera for a minute. This is a photograph of the DNA molecule. The DNA is a long ribbon-like material that has all of the genetic information about who you are, what you are, whether your hair is dark, whether your eyes are blue or red or whatever, okay? (laughs) And uh, if you look at it when... uh, a cell is getting ready to reproduce, two of these uh, chromosome chains kind of hook together. And actually what happens is when when it's getting ready to reproduce, the uh, DNA makes an exact duplicate of itself. Mm -hmm. And then the two separate in two separate cells, and that's how things grow. Now, I want to show you another little slide here. Let's see if this one turns out to be visible. I don't expect you to be able to read the writing, but you'll notice that this, uh, these chromosomes, which are this big collection of information, if we zoom in on it, you can see here is, here's what it looks like. We have these, a double helix, which means two ribbons twisted together, and they are all the way through here coiled up. If you took all of this DNA ribbon and stood it up in the human body, in, in every cell of your body, you would have about nine feet tall. And yet it's so small it fits inside one little cell, so it's all crumpled up. Now if you can see in this picture, this gets a little hard here. Should we zoom in? Zooming in, maybe a little better now, you see these little round balls. These are actually proteins that are in there and and in different sections of this chain is information. It's like a recipe on how to grow different kinds of proteins, how to grow different kinds of body cells. This is all the information that you'd need to make a body that looks like your body, OK? I'm going to show you. Back up. There we go. This is a uh, kind of an artistic. Rend- rendition of the human genome. This is all of the chromosomes in the human body. And if you look at them, there are actually uh, 23 sets of chromosomes. And each one of these literally have millions of these little uh, information. These are all the little ribbons. And these different collections are all the attributes of your body. Now you notice down here, the very last uh, set is the 23rd chromosome, and one of these is an X and one of them is a Y. If you have an X and a Y in this last set, then you are a guy. If you have two Xs, you are a lady. That's what determines whether or not uh, you're a lady or, or a man. Other than that, these are pretty much the same, except with the uh, variations between different people. I'm telling you all of this because I want to make this interesting point. In einkorn wheat, there are 14 chromosomes, 14 of these chains of genetic information that the plant uses to grow another plant next year and another plant next year. When they started hybriding wheat, trying to make it so it would be drought resistant so that it would react better to fertilizers and some of the things they did, they jumped that up first to 28 chromosomes and now it's clear up to 44 chromosomes. They're like 500 wheats that we eat that have really been messed up by mixing with goatweed and other plants that they thought maybe improved the properties. But some of us, and, and this is not the field in which I'm an expert by any means, but some of us think that it is this hybriding of the wheat that ended up in a variety that some of our bol- bodies do not tolerate very well. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying maybe we ought to get back to a wheat for those people that can't eat the I don't want to call it the messed up wheat, so we'll just call it hard wheat, okay? (laughs) And uh, so that's the whole idea of this project. So to me, it seems like this is something that could make a lot of people happier and healthier is if we can get this wheat going. And so I became a farmer not because uh, I thought I was good at it. In fact, I found out farming's really hard. (laughs) You gotta be really smart to be a successful farmer. But I did it because I really think we need this. And this past weekend, we took the drone, the Celis drone out, and we flew it over the wheat field to see how this wheat is looking. And we're now probably about three or four weeks away from our harvest. Our wheat's just starting to turn black again. So we still have black-eyed corn. Would you like to see the drone shot? Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the 92 acres, all grown naturally. All right, let's go up on the drone. There we go. to see it in the wind. And this wheat is tall. It's clear up to your chest. And it looks like we're going to have a really good harvest. And there it is. Thank you. That's beautiful. So we've got a problem. We tried to make better wheat, and it looks like maybe we messed it up. Mm. So we had to go back and find the old original stuff. And now we've got to get a lot of it growing, and then we've got to get a lot of people growing. And that's why I'm telling about it. Maybe some of you will decide to be farmers (laughs) and will consider raising einkorn wheat. And if you need some seed, I'm hopefully going to have a whole bunch soon. This winter, we're preparing about 325 acres. So we keep doing a little more every year, plus we're going to try and get other people doing it. And everybody that has tried the, the products made with the sign corn wheat seems to really enjoy it. it it's a wonderful flavor thing and it, it just seems to settle well and makes you feel good. It's a good healthy food. We need to use our ability to study science and everything around us to make our world better. And when we find an idea that we think might make a difference, then we need to make the effort to make it happen. So hopefully, a lot of corn will be coming out soon. And a lot of you will hopefully get a little bit and try it out. It's fun. And then tell everybody, we need more corn. I think this is something that can come back very quickly if we get a lot of people helping. Thank you, and good night.
0: Thank you all for joining us tonight. We'll see you next week. Have a great night.